Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 359 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Ian McEwen. He's the author of more than a dozen novels, including Saturday, Solar, and Nutshell, and his most popular novel, Atonement, was adapted into a feature film starring Keira Knightley and James McAvoy. He's also been listed by the Times of London as one of the 50 greatest British writers since 1945. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new novel, Machines Like Me, an alternate history set in the 1980s in which a man and a robot compete for a woman's affections. And now here's our interview with Ian McEwan. All right, so we're here with Ian McEwan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so I want to start out and talk about your story, Dussel, which appeared in the New York Review of Books. So how did that oh, story right. come about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, really, it was a five-finger exercise to get me into the state of mind for writing the novel. Um, and so it was just a way of surveying the material, really, and thinking about what it would mean to have among us fully conscious <clears throat> artificial human beings. Well, and so then how about this image of this this future world where robots are so common and so indistinguishable from humans that it's uh, it's become almost uh, politically incorrect to even ask anyone? Yes, I mean, I, I mean, there was a serious point behind this, which is once we build creatures that we now suspect or even believe are fully sentient and conscious like us, uh, I wonder to what extent we can tell ourselves that we own them. Can you really own another's consciousness? And I think that we will find over many years that our own values will change in relation to artificial consciousness and that we will begin to want to give them rights as well as responsibilities. And so, given that we have a strong anthropomorphic tendency anyway. We're kind of well disposed to granting consciousness to inanimate things. Uh, you know, anyone whose car won't start and they've given it a good kick is already in an emotional relationship with a machine. So I, I could well imagine that we, granting them rights, responsibilities, responding to them as we do other humans, that it were, might become sort of rather physically intrusive to be asking someone who you can't tell at a glance whether they're real or uh, human. Um, to actually ask them if they're real would seem profoundly impolite. I mean, there's a scene in the story where there's two people and they're having sex and one asks the other, yeah. are you real? And yeah. that same image yeah. recurs in machines like me. So there must be something about that that, that really strikes you. Yes, I mean, I, I was trying to get to the... You know, really what it would be like to be in the most intimate relationships. Um, I don't just mean sex, but I mean close emotional relationships with an artificial human. And so, uh, yeah, the, the, the story, writing the story helps kind of loosen up the issues for me. I've I never done it, never worked this way before, but um, in the sense that this all sort of, although it's about a very different kind of world and it's spoken from um, an sort of, uh, unidentified remote point of the future um, really just uh, was asking itself what it would be like if we came to even take for granted 
um, artificial humans and mammals, androids, or whatever you want to call them, robots. And, and whether we would even wonder whether our president or our prime minister was, was real or not, and at some point suddenly find that it became irrelevant, um, and then maybe even sort of non-PC. Right, and the the robot characters or the the world as it's described makes it seem pretty optimistic. The the way that things have turned out with these robots and um, machines like me complicates it a lot more. Did you sort of feel like you wanted to pull back from that, or did you um you know does a novel need more uh, more going wrong? Yeah, I I mean I can't remember now if I was. Uh, at the stage of casting it backwards in time, the novel when I was writing the story, um, the story, because it's only four thousand words, really doesn't go into much about the sort of social reality. But the novel, um, I took a decision, maybe a rather strange one, to to set it not in the future but in the past. Uh, familiar, rather grubby, the world um, is not so dissimilar from our own. Um, all the extraordinary and exciting machines come, but uh, as I've often reflected, um, it, we get used to these machines with astonishing rapidity. Uh, I remember being in uh, Manhattan uh, some years ago and seeing a huge line down the street, maybe you know, 400 yards around the block, and I asked my friend, what was going on? I thought maybe it was, you know, I thought maybe Van Morrison was in town or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you know, they were queuing for, they, they were lining up for um, an iPhone 4 or 5. You ask yourself now, where, where, where are all those iPhone 4s and 5s? They're at the bottom of your sock drawer or they're in the hands of your grandchildren uh, playing games on them. And they just become, yes, you know, yesterday's junk. And our kind of avidity for the newest thing rapidly becomes you know, just a grubby piece of familiar stuff. Uh, and we're like children. Anyone who's watched children on Christmas Day opening presents, uh, they open one and barely absorb it before the excitement of opening another. You know, so I think we're rather like children in that respect. So we might have trains that can you know, go at 400 miles an hour and get you to another city at amazing speed with much more convenience and uh, make flying a domestic flight. Uh, but soon those planes, those trains will become grubby and uninteresting and, uh, overcrowded and you know, the, the technical miracle of it just fades before us. So, uh, placing all that in the recent past, uh, just seemed to be a, a kind of, again, a bit of narrative mischief. Well, so talk about this character, Adam, the robot character in the novel. Just what was your approach to making a robot character seem believable and compelling to the reader? Well, I mean, you put your finger on what, for me, was the central challenge, is that I had to persuade the reader that this was a character as much as any of the other characters. And I also wanted the reader to share Charlie, the narrator, who's the one who um, comes into some money and buys himself uh, an artificial human. Uh, I wanted the reader to share Charlie's uh, ambivalence. Sometimes he's thinking he's actually dealing with a human. He's so lifelike, his responses are so entirely plausible. Sometimes 
he thinks he's just playing a very elaborate and expensive computer game. Uh, and he moves in and out of that, uh, that sense of Adam all the time. And I wanted the reader to completely share that ambivalence. Uh, and that's largely actually why I, I wrote the novel in the first person, trying to get the reader to be in uh, Charlie's shoes. So I just built him up. Uh, I let his character shape through events, really. Um, I'd given him um, a sort of extravagant, adolescent, intellectual blossoming where he comes up with some slightly strange and mad theories about the death of literature and how humans are one day all going to be connected to each other through a kind of internet, through the cloud, so that they will lose all sense of privacy, but at the same time they will understand each other all too well. And human misunderstanding will drop away, and uh, and of course then, uh, as he sees it, there'll be no space left for the novel, because the novel depends so much on human conflict and misunderstanding. And this to Adam, in his infancy of thinking, uh, resembles a utopia. But uh, to Charlie and the, the girl he loves, Miranda, this is like uh, a nightmare. I mean, I'm curious why you call that uh, speculation adolescence. I mean, you know, Elon Musk has a company called Neuralink where they actually are trying to integrate uh, microchips with human brains to increase people's memory. And um, I mean, do you think there is some value to to speculating where that might go, seeing it as as it is sort of does seem to be a reality uh, on the horizon? Oh, I do. I mean, already there are patients who can move a cursor on the screen um, via a small diode on the, the motor strip in the back of their heads on, on um, their brains. So I think this is going to happen. We are going to enhance. But the idea of the complete destruction of, of mental privacy into a kind of sea of, of other minds uh, strikes me as um, a, a nightmarish future, but one that definitely is worth exploring. I mean, it certainly seems nightmarish to me as well. But of course, we were both born into a world where there is privacy. Yeah. But I, I want—I mean, you look at younger people who grew up with social media, and they have—they're uh, they're sort of very blasé about privacy in a way that's unimaginable even to me. Uh, and I do wonder yeah. if in in the future, yeah. if people might view privacy the way that we view chastity or something, where we we don't understand why people used to think it was such a big deal. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. Uh, and I think the thing on something really central here is we do not know the extent to which our own values will change as we sit among the things that we've devised. And I think back to, for example, uh, the Internet itself. In the late 90s, practically everyone I knew was on the Internet. All the technology was there for social media, uh, but it wasn't really launched in a huge way and an inclusive way into our lives, and, uh, maybe in a sinister and political way into our lives. Like, you, know, you, you might have a president now who's there via social media um, for many years afterwards. And the impossibility of our own predictions, even though we're building the future by our collective actions and decisions, we just cannot tell what effect it will have on ourselves and what we will what we will do with the things we've made. 
I was one of the sort of true optimists about the internet. Um, I thought my first thoughts were all about citizen journalism, uh, extraordinary freedom. When the Arab Spring came around in 2011, I thought, this is brilliant. This is what the internet can do, challenge uh, authoritarian governments. Um, we had not yet touched the dark side of this. And that, you know, for example, the way in which a hostile country could influence uh, elections in a democratic country via social media. So there's that and there's the way in which our own values shift in relation to uh, or prompted by the things we've made. And again, almost impossible to uh, predict what effect it would have on us uh, to have highly intelligent artificial creatures that we've made ourselves. I mean, one one thought is that um, as they become more involved in making the, the succeeding generations, uh, their own consciousness will drift far away from ours. Remember that the very first uh, automobiles were completely designed to look like uh, horse-drawn carriages, hmm. you know, lots of twiddly bits, lanterns. And often one technology takes a while to fully separate itself out from from the technologies that, that have preceded it. Do you remember when we all had some kind of answering machines on our telephones? So if we were out of the house, and we would read messages which would say, oh, I can't come to the phone right now because I've gone down to the shops and uh, I'll be back in some time, but you can leave the message out to the beat. People went on saying that for years. Um, then along come cell phones. All you have to do is phone someone, they're not in. You, could, you click the phone off and they'll see a list of all the callers and missed calls they had. Um, now it seems extraordinarily quaint when you see a movie in which someone is listening to a 90-second you know, message <laughs> to explain that they're not able to take the call. Um, and what's happening there? Well, I guess when we left those long messages, we were sort of standing in the room with our caller, explaining ourselves, as we once might have. Uh, now the technology finally puts a kind of crowbar between uh, the present and the past and we and we all move on. I think it's a fascinating process uh, by which we are made different by the things we make. It's interesting because, you know, my, my girlfriend is about 10 years younger than I am. And when we first started dating, uh -huh. I, would, yeah. I would send her text messages and she would reply a couple times and then just vanish without saying, I'm going away, I won't be back for a couple hours. And I would get really upset. Yeah, yeah. And she was just thought this was completely yeah. normal. And there was this just this generational disconnect over how you use this technology. Yeah. Well, I still send text saying, dear Henry, comma, new line, uh, and then <laughs> with warmest best wishes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but somehow the, um, yeah, I, I think the, the structure of my text uh, rests on the memory of writing letters with a pen and they open with a salutation and they sign off in a certain formal way. Uh, so yeah, we, 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 the, 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 the new toys we make force us into new ways, but yeah. we are slow and reluctant, especially the older ones among us, to let go of the old forms. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, you mentioned that Adam, you, Adam is written in the book to be very ambiguous and that people, he does things and readers are split on whether they think he was justified doing them or not. 
even though he never yeah. violates his own ethics. And this is another thing I was talking about with my girlfriend is um, there's a part in the book yeah. where Charlie criticizes Adam for he says utilitarianism sometimes goes crazy. And it seems to me, do you, do you see uh, Adam as a, as a utilitarian thinker? And is that part of why people are conflicted about some of the things he does is because you're, you're um, situating it on a fault line between utilitarianism and virtue ethics? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm fascinated by the thought that we have a pretty strong idea how how to behave well, how to what it means to be good. And we have religions, we have our philosophies, we have our gossip in which we judge each other uh, against certain standards. And I think it's perfectly possible that in making uh, a robot, android, artificial human, whatever you want to call it, uh, we could imbue them with with our best values, um, you know, not to lie, not to betray, um, obey the rule of law, and so on. But of course, with our own moral behaviour, we often cut ourselves a little slack. Um, we certainly will cut slack for those we love, uh, and actually, the human application of moral precepts is incredibly complicated. And I would say from our standpoint now, almost possible, impossible to, to program. So at the heart of this novel is a moral dilemma, uh, something in Miranda's past where she has committed an act of revenge. And Adam takes one view of this, and uh, Charlie, the narrator, and Miranda take a different view. And it's in that difference that I want to explore uh, what it means really to be human um, in the ways in which we uh, sort of warmly or warm-bloodedly uh, will apply slightly different rules in different circumstances, which I think Adam uh, finds very, very difficult to understand. Well, right, because I think the thing that's interesting to me is that Adam always does what he perceives as being for the greater good. Um, but then that causes problems yeah. for people he's close to. And we, yeah. as humans, we, um, you know, you, you don't want to be, you don't want your friends to be doing things for the greater good if it's going to hurt you. And so it's this kind of interesting conflict, as I was saying, between, um, utilitarianism and, and virtue ethics or from a, from a Kantian perspective. If everybody were to act like Adam, it would be, everyone would be acting for the greater good, but no one would trust anyone else to look out for the people closest to them. So c civilization would kind of crumble. I think it's a classic dilemma, um, absolutely. And we will face this issue, uh, we might resolve it by having such extraordinary algorithms of deep learning that we don't even feed in the moral precepts. We just let our artificial cousins um, learn for themselves uh, the slightly contradictory, slightly self-excusing way of, of human beings. I mean, the writer, I think the great American uh, writer Daniel Kahneman has listed for us all the, the extraordinary uh, cognitive defects that humans have, you know, confirmatory bias and all the rest of it. Uh, so what can we expect when such a flawed being makes an artificial version of itself? Uh, and I think we'll find ourselves in you know, very interesting 
moral dilemmas in which we will be thrown back on uh, that old question, what, you know, what is it to be a human? They, they will throw us into relief is my sense of things. Well, you're were, you were talking about how this advanced technology could render literature obsolete because people would have no secrets to keep, and without secrets, there's really no story. And I was having a similar conversation a few months ago with Yuval Noah Harari, and his point was that um, literature also involves characters making choices, and big data yeah. is becoming so powerful that you're you might just want to trust your robot you know you, you ask your you ask adam should i marry miranda should i adopt mark and you would always just trust adam because adam's judgment is always going to be better than yours but then it's not very interesting to read a story yeah. about a character who's just always asking his robot what he should do about everything right uh well let me say that i'm i think of charles darwin uh wondering whether he should marry Emma. And uh, well, I think you can see in his papers in Cambridge, uh, he made out a, a list on one side of the page, he put pro, and down <laughs> the other side, he put contra. Um, so he was taking a kind of very instrumental view of a difficult, of what seemed to him at least, a, a difficult decision, shall I do um, Someone to look after me in my old days, is one I remember. Uh, uh, but on the contra, um, someone with whom I might become so familiar that uh, I become bored. <laughs> um, it's fascinating for us to see that list. And in fact, uh, Darwin made a good choice in Emma and was married for, for decades. Uh, I don't know how whether you could ever call that big data or not, um, but. Um, We've already reached that stage of beginning to hand over ethical decisions to to the AI. Um, already, car automobile manufacturers are having to decide to what extent the driver or the you know, main passenger of a set of vehicles should be protected against the interests of pedestrians. And I don't know if you saw it, but uh, Nature published. Um, some months back, uh, a big survey of uh, people's attitudes in different countries. Uh, and interestingly, in the United States and Western Europe, uh, when people were asked the question, who are the most valuable human beings, uh, the general answer was, was children. Asked the same question um, in China, people responded, the most valuable human beings are old people, but we must uh, respect elders. So car manufacturers might have to adjust uh, um, programs for emergency decisions, whether you should swerve to avoid a head-on collision with the cost of um, mowing down a pedestrian, uh, handing over that good second decision to uh, a machine, a, a computer that can think, you know, a thousand times faster. Um, but we we should rightly feel um, uneasy, but even though we're pretty clumsy in such decisions, handing over that responsibility is a big step. Already, you know, we've had 400 people die in the air in two plane crashes in the Boeing 737 MAX 8. And these were essentially autonomous vehicles whose brains 
uh, well, insisting that the airplane was stalling when it was not. And there was nothing that the pilot could do to override the decision of this brain. That's a really tragic, awful, tragic uh, confrontation with AI that rather reminded me of that the last moment in 2001 Space Odyssey of talking to Hal and Hal has made his decision. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we will need to be really having conversations like the one you and I are having um, about moral decision-taking and what we hand over. And I think that philosophy might get a new lease of life when philosophers, moral philosophers, sit around the table with with, um, code writers, programmers, algorithm um, creators. Uh, And who knows, we might find that we are operating a new text uh, to counter the the Mary Shelley Frankenstein text in her famous novel uh, Frankenstein's monster becomes a murderer uh, and that's become really our central text for the dangers of new technologies Uh, but the interesting counter idea, the one I really wanted to explore in the novel, is what if we make people who are nicer and kinder and more moral with us? What kind of issues will we then have? Well, so speaking of stories like like Frankenstein, and you mentioned two thousand one, um, you had a you gave an interview to the Guardian where you were talking about not being that interested in science fiction. Uh, they got a lot of yeah. attention. Uh, there yeah. was—I don't know if you saw—there was a follow-up uh, piece in the Guardian where they said this week Ian McEwan said his new AI novel was not science fiction, and the world went mad. Did you follow the, yeah, the world going mad part? I, uh, my wife told me about the headline. I, I'm not on Twitter. I—I uh, I mean, I was a little taken back. What, how a rather off, offhand remark of mine uh, should cause such a storm? And actually, I've read a, a fair amount of science fiction over a lifetime. Uh, and I think like all forms, um, and just like literary fiction, whatever we're going to call that, you know, there are brilliant examples and, um, you know, some of it's trash. Um, and I was referring to, I just looked at some science fiction like a few months ago in a store and it had, you know, dragons and spaceships and anti-gravity boots, and that was the trashy side of it. But I've read um, Philip K. Dick. I've read, uh, I think, one of the great science fiction novels, m- not much mentioned these days, is A Canticle for, for Leibovitz. Um, and, you know, I've read Brian Aldiss and um, Stanislav Lem and Les Stapleton, again, not mentioned these days, but his first and last men. I think is uh, you know a classic, and there comes a point where I think we we just want to leap free of categories. I mean, what do we call Aldous Huxley's Brave New World? I mean, by any standard, it's science fiction, but it just sort of moves out of that into uh, the literary canon. And I guess you, I'd be very happy for my novel to be called science fiction but it's also a counterfactual novel it's also a historical novel it's also um a moral dilemma novel uh in in a you know very well 
established traditional form within the, the literary novel. But, um, yeah, I mean, no one's asked me about this yet, so I'm glad you have. Um, you know, I'm a great fan of, for example, Blade Runner, um, both the first and, 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 and the new um, version of it. That, uh, I've watched both more than twice. And I actually put a nod towards Blade Runner in Adam's final speeches after he's been attacked by, by Charlie. Uh, there's a very self-conscious nod of, uh, to that farewell, that famous farewell in the rain uh, in Blade Runner. So, you know, I've taken a lot of um, enjoyment and pleasure in science fiction. I think Dune is a great novel. Um, Ursula Le Guin, I've read. So, you know, um, I just feel the community, if that's what it is, is a little too sensitive. I mean, um, you know, uh, I'm um, very happy if they want to call my novel science fiction, or even honoured. But it's much else, that's all I'm trying to say. Right, it's interesting to hear you say that because, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a great admirer of, of all those authors and books that you mentioned. Um but you do you do in a, a number of interviews sort of um, indicate that you're not fond of you talk a lot about anti gravity boots and um, you know traveling at five yeah. times the speed of light. Um, yeah, that's that's the side of science fiction that doesn't much. And, and once the supernatural gets in as well, um, then for me, you know, I just sort of blank out. Um, but you know. It's like any any form within the novel. There are great examples and, and for me, ones that are far less interesting. Um, I mean, a, a writer I really love is Tom Gish, uh, who, who wrote uh, a volume of story called Fun With Your New Head. Um, I, I think he was a wonderful writer. I was curious if you uh, were familiar with the Scottish writer Ian Banks, because he wrote a whole sequence yeah, of sure. space operas, you know, that do have faster than light travel yeah. and may have anti-gravity boots. I don't yeah. remember, but are are so intelligent and political and uh, literary yeah. and and all, and all that. Absolutely, I love Banks. He's worth a great deal. I'm very sorry uh, we lost him. Uh, he was a crucial figure in British history culture. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad I'm talking to you about this because, you know, all week I've just been seeing so many of my friends on social media saying that they're not going to read machines like me because they're they're upset about how you were quoted. And I think that, you know, if it were more widely known uh, how many science fiction authors that you are familiar with and admire, you know, there that wouldn't be, uh, you know, it would allay that uh, those feelings. Yeah, maybe. Um, but, you know, that's there's great and there's bad science fiction just as there's great and bad and atrocious literary fiction um, and there's, there's much to be said about all of it um, I still would say that Tentacle for Life of It for me is one of the great novels of our, uh, of our age um, Alright well so let's finish up on some uh, maybe some more fun stuff um, I noticed you know I, I previously read your novel Saturday and there's uh, that the yeah. sort of the big inciting incident to that is that uh, there's a character and he almost gets in a physical altercation with somebody on the street, and something similar yeah. happens in uh, in machines like me. And I was just wondering if that's something that happens to you a lot, or is it something that you worry is going to happen to you a lot? Or 
No, it, um, you mean the conversation between the neurosurgeon and um, a kind of street guy who's suffering from yeah, Huntington's, Huntington's career, and Korea. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, no, nothing like that's ever happened to me. But uh, I was interested in the ways in which really terrible um, medical um, afflictions, um, especially ones that are inherited, can rest on such tiny errors in the DNA. Um, So in the case of Huntington's career, uh, there's a repeat um, of the code on CAG, uh, and if if you have too many re- repeats, the more repeats you have, uh, the more likely you're going to get an early onset of this terrible um, neurodegenerative disease. And it has the quality almost of a of a curse uh, that you might get in a Greek tragedy. Um, that such small things can have such colossal effects on uh, a life and, and, and therefore the lives around the person who's afflicted. Um, so, yeah, that was, it was really a sort of bridge between uh, the, the molecular biology and uh, the moral dimensions in which a life is, is lived out. Fascinating about that that moment of recognition when the uh, the neurosurgeon suddenly understands what um, this man Baxter is suffering from. It's interesting when you're talking about the biology because I heard in an interview that you once wrote a sequel to The Fly that was never used, but it, t- it sounds like you did a lot of oh, yeah. biological research for that. I did. Uh, this was way back when we still didn't even have the human genome project launched and um, I decided uh, having been asked if I'd write the follow-up to the fly to try and base it as closely as possible on contemporary knowledge and I found a book called How to Make a Fly Um, and although that fly was not a house fly as in the movie um, it was a fruit fly and uh, I try to build it around as much as possible, um, uh, a proper understanding of, of, of genetics. And that was in the mid-90s. And how quickly um, what I knew fell out of date. And I remember my son, William, went to study biology at the University College in London. And uh, he showed me... Uh, right at the beginning of his course, he said, please don't read anything about genetics before 1997. Hmm. Now, we were in the year 2001, and uh, the speed with which that subject was changing uh, was astonishing. But yeah, um, like many screenplays, this, this one never got made, largely because of complications around uh, contested ownership of, of the fly concept. And so, uh, having done two or three drafts, uh, I, I fell back exhausted, moved on. Do you think you might write more stuff that would be of interest to science fiction readers like that, like uh, about robots or genetic engineering and things like that? Yes, I might, but um, from what you're saying, they, they, they won't read it. Cause <laughs> upset. Uh, 
Well, no, after uh, they listen to but, this interview, yeah, they'll, all, they'll all love you. Yeah, well, I don't know. Uh, it's so easy to upset people. And uh, as I said, uh, yeah, I absolutely will because I, I think that the, I think that the novel, and I think we should just be talking about the novel rather than the literary novel and science fiction novel. But the novel is a very good uh, means of examining colossal social change, but also of uh, the moral dilemmas that new technologies are going to make us confront. Uh, and I think it could be uh, a resurgence, really, a, a revitalization of reform, in which quite possibly um, concepts and categories of literary novels as against science fiction novels will completely vanish because we'll need the technical grasp of technologies that the best science fiction yields to us and we'll need the traditional examinations of moral dilemmas that the literary novel has always prided itself upon. So, you know, I look forward to these categories just dissolving because the actual subject matter itself is really both fascinating and frightening. Uh, as we you know, just now start with our toes in this ocean uh, of handing over ethical decisions to the machines we've made. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think that's a really perfect note to end on. So uh, unless you have anything else to say, I say let's uh, let's just wrap it up there. Okay. Well, thanks for asking such interesting questions. Um, and I'm, I'm really pleased to um, address this whole, whole matter of form. I mean, finally... Science fiction writers um, and thriller writers and traditional so-called literary novelists—they're all novelists, and that's—and they finally have to be judged, you know, on how good they are, not, not which category they belong in. Absolutely. All right. So we've been speaking with Ian McEwen about his new book, Machines Like Me. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, real pleasure. Thanks. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Ian McEwen for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it... Tell no one. Thank you for listening.